You're listening to Writers on Writing, a show about the art, craft, and business of writing. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. Today, my guest is Clemence Michelon, author of The Quiet Tenant. Clemence was born and raised near Paris, France. She studied journalism at City University of London, received a master's degree in journalism from Columbia University, and has written for The Independent since 2018. Her essays and features have covered true crime, celebrity culture, and literature. She divides her time between New York City and Rhinebeck, New York. On the show, we talked about point of view, how the quiet tenant began, how she kept the tension ratcheted up throughout, why crime writers often appear to be happy, perky people, revision, how journalism has helped with writing fiction, and more. But before we bring her on, a few words about Patreon. Please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash writersonwriting. Any amount of support helps us to continue bringing the show to you. Since 1998, when Writers on Writing began broadcasting at KUCI-FM on the UC Irvine campus, we've aired a show every week, even during COVID. The show is a volunteer effort with Marie and I hosting and producing and Travis Barrett creating the music and editing the sound. A few dollars a month goes far in helping us to continue bringing the show to you. You can also help the show by buying books at bookshop.org slash shop slash writers on writing, where you'll find books by authors who've been on the show, as well as other books we like. And now for my talk with Clemence Michel. I'm so happy to talk with you. I I read The Quiet Tenant um, first on NetGalley, and then I had to have a hard copy. So um, then I finished the book uh, with the hard copy. And so let's begin by um, hearing from you how the novel came about. And especially I'm curious if there was a moment when you knew that this was an idea you had to pursue. And then what? What happened then? Yeah, first of all, thank you so much for your kind words. Thank you for having me. Um, The book started for me in March of 2020, Mm. which was a very intense time, I think, for everyone. And uh, it was the time where uh, I was spending, I spent a few weeks between March and April 2020 in upstate New York in my in-laws house. and it was myself, my husband, and his parents, and we were all confined together. And it was very interesting because we all knew what everyone in our little group did for a living, but suddenly we were really together all day long, and we got to see how everyone spent their day hour by hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and it got me thinking, what if someone had been hiding a dark secret from their family, thanks mm-hmm. to that distance that is usually built into our schedules and our routines and our commutes and our jobs and what if suddenly that distance was threatened and I was thinking you know what are some secrets that are really bad that one might keep from their family and I thought well being a serial killer is pretty much top of the list 
I think, <laughs> in terms of uh, of things you could conceal from those closest to you. And there's no pandemic in the in the novel, of course. Uh, I took that element out, and I had to find another way for uh, my serial killer character to see the, his worlds colliding. And in the book, it's because he has to move from the the relatively large property where he is holding a captive. Uh, in his garden shed to a smaller house. And and so he he decides to move her into the house with himself and his teenage daughter, who obviously doesn't know about his crimes and thinks this woman is a tenant who's renting out a spare room. So mm-hmm. I was playing with all these scenarios. And I think I knew from the get-go that this was something I wanted to do. Um, I had been darkly fascinated with serial killer stories for a long time. I think I was 12 years old when my mother, I think just trying to make conversation, told me about a man named Ted Bundy. And <laughs> just making and that, conversation. You know, we, we we would watch true crime shows together and it sort of was a thing. And um and I think, you know, because those months of 2020 were so weird and intense and uncertain. Uh, I I decided that, you know, this was something I could control. Uh, It felt like we could lose so many things and so many people very suddenly. Mm -hmm. But I thought to myself, well, if I'm working on a new project, I'm a writer. And if I can tell myself, well, I have written 500 to 1,000 words of a new project at the end of the day, then I know I'm at least doing something right. I'm taking, taking at least one step in the right direction. And... Yeah, that's how that's really how the novel started for me. And then what? What came next? I mean, did you did you do an outline or did you just let it fly and see what happened? So I knew how it would start and I knew how I wanted it to end. Um, and then I wasn't really sure how I was going to get from the beginning to the end. <laughs> Here in life, the rub, really. Uh, <laughs> but but I I'm not I'm not an outliner. Uh, for me, the fun is figuring out what's what's between the beginning and the end. Um, and I think if I were to make a detailed outline, it would for me it would take all the fun out of the exercise. Uh, it would just be well, then it's just kind of like homework, right? Something I have to write, <laughs> kind of like a paper in high school. Um, but I know some authors really swear by their outlines. Uh, so I understand we all have our different systems. W- how it worked for me is I sort of had points I thought I might want to hit uh, between the, the, the beginning and the end, you know, around the middle or the first third or the, the last third. Um, but I wasn't sure if they were going to make it in the final version or really how they would play out. And I think of it as if you're walking in a really dark forest, and you can only see five feet ahead of you, by the time you get there, you will be able to see five more feet ahead. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of how I thought about it. So I worked on the first draft for six months. I'm a word count girl. So I I had an aim to do between 500 and 1,000 words a day. I find that having a a range of words rather than a specific amount works for me because 500 words is easy enough to hit, but it also, I'm not capped at that. But also I'm not aiming for a thousand, which can be a little much on busy days. And if I, if I try to do a thousand every day, sometimes it's over before I start because I don't have time to do a thousand. And and I realize it can't be a thousand or zero. It should be flexible. 
And so that's how I did a first draft in about six months. And then I reworked it by myself for another six months. I didn't have an agent at the time. And once I felt that I had made it as good as I possibly could by myself, and I'd had a couple of friends reassure me that it didn't read like the mad ramblings <laughs> of a serial killer. <laughs> um, I sent it to one agent whom I knew from having written a piece. He was my friend, Corinne Sullivan's agent, and he still is. And he, I had interviewed him for a piece about publishing a couple of years prior. And so I sent it to the man who became my agent, Stephen Barbara, and he offered to represent me. And from there, it went quite fast. We revised it a little bit together and then it went to auction and Knopf won the auction. And, and then it was, it was a very happy story. Yeah, that's a great story. That's a great story. It's interesting. You mentioned, you mentioned the serial killer, Aiden, and, um, and yet we never hear the story from his point of view. You have the three points of view. You have Rachel, the woman, Aiden, the killer, for some reason is keeping alive first in the backyard shed later in the house, then his daughter, Cecilia. And then there's Emily, the local restaurant owner, right? Who falls for him, not knowing who he is. Um, and by all appearances, he's this wonderful, beloved member of the community. So how did you choose these particular characters to tell the story? Yeah, I knew from the beginning that I didn't want the serial killer to speak. I wanted to tell the story of a man like him, but he doesn't get to speak. Only the women and girl around him get to speak. Um, I think there are two reasons for this. One is that if, if by any chance you spend any time listening to FBI interview tapes of serial killers, <laughs> um, which I guess you did. <laughs> I have. <laughs> um, then you might have noticed that serial killers aren't always the most fascinating uh, storytellers. Uh, mm -hmm. They lie, they obfuscate, they ramble on, um, they have strange sort of pockets of shame that causes them to just not want to talk about the things they did or if they do it's in these very indirect terms and and they're, they're not very open. And so I, it, I never thought that a serial killer would be the most reliable narrator about themselves. Um, but more to the point was that um, I'm a consumer of true crime. I watch documentaries, I read books, I listen to podcasts. Um, I was noticing a trend where we sort of took our attention away from perpetrators and redirected it towards victims of those perpetrators, as well as sort of the loved ones who were left uh, having to deal with their own lives once someone's crimes were revealed, um, which struck me as a very traumatic thing to go through. Um, one very powerful example for me was a documentary that came out in early 2020, right before 2020 became what it became. Um, and it was called Falling for a Killer. And it was based on a memoir written by a woman who was Ted Bundy's living partner for multiple years. Um, and she actually suspected him and tried to alert the police, I believe twice, and she wasn't believed. Um, and in this documentary, she spoke and her daughter spoke uh, 
but also uh, a surviving victim of Ted Bundy spoke. Uh, his brother is a participant in it. And it was really this, this documentary in which it was the Ted Bundy story, but in the real world. Mm-hmm. It didn't just happen to Ted Bundy. It happened to all those people. And of course, his late victims were prominently discussed, right? Their lives were were very much a part of the documentary. And I thought it was a much more interesting way mm-hmm. to talk about that story um, because this is how crime stories actually unfold. It's uh, it's not an individual story. It's it's the story of of multiple systems that are thrown into complete disarray, and that really made an impact on me. It seemed much more meaningful. Mm. Were there any other point of view characters that you um, were writing that you left out? No. So actually, the way those points of view came together. Um, was sort of working from one point of view and then broadening the the field a little bit. Uh, but there there are no no one is on the cutting room. Uh, wait, yes, no one's on the cutting room floor. <laughs> I was like, is that the phrase? <laughs> um, uh, so I started actually originally I was writing this quote unquote just from the perspective of the character who is known throughout the novel as Rachel. We know it's not her real name, but she is the captive that Aiden couldn't kill and whom he has held captive for five years by the time the novel begins. Mm-hmm. And at first he was my sole narrator and her point of view really spoke to me, but it was also limiting because she only sees one side of Aiden, the side that he wants to present to her a side where he's in control and he's powerful and he's cunning and he's a planner. And he is, he, it's the side that he likes to think of himself as, you know, the man who can get away with things. Um, And then one evening I was walking my dog, letting my mind wander. I was listening to a song from the 1990s, uh, which is just a party tune, really not trying to like think of thrillery things. And I had an idea. Oh, it's called Baila Baila Conmigo. Okay. And <laughs> I was listening to it because in 1998, I think it was me and my cousins and we and my family, we we, we made up a choreography to it. And I and I like to sometimes <laughs> re-listen to it. And maybe it was just a very tender and innocent memory um, that just, I don't know how it produced this, this idea. But I, I suddenly I thought, what if there was the point of view of another person in this novel, a woman who's had a crush on our serial killer character for years, doesn't know he's a serial killer, of course. And what if suddenly she she's gonna she's gonna sort of try to get closer to him and not realize at all what she's walking into. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well that's really interesting. And I and I and then for a second I thought maybe it's just sort of shiny new thing syndrome, right? Like it's just uh when you're working on a novel sometimes the idea of doing anything but what you've been doing is really appealing. Um, but I decided to try it after talking to a friend and, uh, cause I, she reminded me that if I tried it and it didn't work, I could just delete it. Um, but I never looked back. So that's how I started adding Emily. And I thought it was really, I mean, I thought it, it was really fun for me to write her chapters. And so I thought it might be fun for the reader as well, because it took us out of the very limited setting of the garden shed and then the house where Rachel is held captive. It enabled me to take the reader more into the town where Aiden lives and 
the the restaurant where Emily works in is a bartender. And then there can be all these conversations and we get to see another side of Aiden where he's a little bit in control, but not always because he's not, he's not in a situation where he has power of life and death over somebody always. And um, when she doesn't know that he he's doing all these crimes, so she just treats him like a regular guy. And then I thought, well, if Emily gets to talk, then surely we should hear from Aiden's daughter because she also has access to information that neither of the other two characters has, right? She knows him as her father. She knows the family history. She can provide us with a vision of Aiden as a family man. And then I wrote the first draft with these three points of view. And at the end, I thought, well, we should probably hear from Aiden's past victims mm -hmm. because they also have another vision, right? They, they know him as a killer. Uh, and neither of the other three characters really knows him that way. Mm -hmm. um, and that was a chance to show him evolve also as a killer, sort of starting out and then developing an MO and... And and if you read those chapters, hopefully you get a sense of what makes him tick and when he kills and maybe his triggers. And those and were that, very short yeah. chapters, weren't they? They were just really very vignettes, really. Yes, they're really little short interstitials. They used to be even shorter mm. and they got lengthened in edits because it seemed that if we wanted to keep them in, that we should probably give them a little bit more uh a little bit more matter right well you you mentioned his daughter cecilia and and that was an interesting relationship because you know she knows he's a little off but she loves her father they play jeopardy every night when it comes on and i you know it was you know of course interesting to see them and then when he brings um rachel into the house that dynamic where, you know, Rachel can't say anything, right? What will he do? I don't know what he would do, but just the three of them together and then him observing them. So talk a little bit about, you know, creating that relationship. Yeah, it was interesting. Writing about Cecilia and Aiden was captivating for me always. I think what I came back to a lot was Whenever these stories happen in real life, whenever a serial a man is revealed to have been both a family man and a serial killer, I think there's a question of, do you think he really loved his family or was it all an act? Mm -hmm. And I've never believed that it was all an act. And I, I, I tend to question this idea we have intuitively that if someone is capable of the most cruel behavior we can think of, then that must mean they're not capable of the opposite. I don't see any reason why that why that should be the case. Uh, a lot of people experience really opposed emotions throughout the day. I don't think Aiden experiences love the way I experience love. Um, but I think that's true for of a lot of people. I think we maybe all experience love differently. But to me, I've never found a reason why we have to sort of rule out any possibility of sincerity in those family relationships. Um, so I wanted to keep the possibility of a certain kind of love in this family open. Um, though, of course, to me, relatives of people who turned out to have lived 
secret lives of crime, those relatives are to me also types of victims, right? They're victims of their lies. They're, they're thrown into a narrative that is very public and they never asked for that. And their lives are blown apart. Um, so to, there is a, there is a, a, a cruelty there as well. Uh, and then I, when adding Rachel into the mix, I was always really intrigued by the idea that Aiden would underestimate the bond that might form between his daughter and this new woman, because I don't really think that he is capable of seeing them as truly competent human beings in the way and also I, he obviously has very low empathy so he wouldn't form a bond like this with someone else and I think that's one of his main weaknesses that ends up playing against him uh, is that he, he really fails to foresee the power of this bond between his victim and his own daughter and I found that captivating and so that was really something I wanted to to, to explore in writing this book. Well, of course it's complicated because Cecilia's loyalties are really, are really complex here. At least in my mind, they are. <laughs> um, you know, you're coming up against years of, of, of being raised by her father and he's her only remaining parent uh, by the time the novel begins. So, um, but all of that seemed to, to me like it would be really interesting uh, ground to, to explore. Yeah. Did you, I mean, did you get to know Aiden as you wrote the book? It sounds like you did. It doesn't, I don't think you did like character biographies or any of that. Did you? I have some notes. There are some things I know and there are some things I don't. Um, I tend to, on the one hand, I, I tell myself I only make up what I need to know to write the novel. I did feel like I needed to know quite a bit. Uh, so a thing I like to do is when I finish a first draft, I set it aside and I just ask myself questions about the story just off the top of my head and see if I can answer them. And if I can't, it's okay, but it's time to figure it out, mm -hmm. right? So in the case of Aiden, for example, just how did he end up in upstate New York? We know he's from Florida originally. Um, how did he get married? How did he meet his wife? And um, there are two things about him. I'll give you one Easter egg that is in the book. <laughs> uh, that that explain a little bit about his uh, upbringing, and and then two, I will explain why he drinks cherry coke. So the Easter egg is that there is a page where Aiden is asked to say uh, sort of where he was born or where he's from, and he says Rayford, Florida. Uh, Rayford, Florida is a very very small town in Florida where there is really one main thing there. Uh, and it's it's the former, I believe now former, state penitentiary. Mm. And it is where, in 1984, Florida executed Ted Bundy. And Ted Bundy was executed on the electric chair. Mm. And if you've read The Stranger Beside Me by Anne Rule, who writes about her friendship with Ted Bundy before he was revealed to be Ted Bundy, the serial killer, she says that in the town of Rayford, it used to be that sometimes the lights would dim because either an execution would be taking place or they would just be you know, doing maintenance on the electric chair or trying it out. 
and it would sort of overwhelm the power grid and so the lights would dim and i had this image because aiden would be a, would have been a child in 1984 and i had this image of this tormented boy dealing with you know the, the, the thoughts of a of, of a boy who would ultimately become a serial killer so probably quite tormented in the small town and the in the flickering light of a living room lamp and that was sort of all I needed to know about his upbringing. Um, that image really stuck with me and that it just seemed to fit. And plus also Aiden works with electricity. So there seemed to be a little bit of a, it po It seemed to make sense to me that he would be born in the place where Ted Bundy died. And the, narratively, it, I like, I, it made sense to me. And then um, the cherry Coke <laughs> is because <laughs> As you said, I, I did get to know Aiden a little bit, and he was a tricky character to write. He was a tricky character to spend time with on a daily basis. And a way that I sort of found my way around that was I gave him characteristics I could relate to. And I love Cherry Coke. It's my favorite flavor of soda. Um, and so I decided to give him a similar taste like as mine uh similarly he has blonde hair he has blue eyes i do too and it was just these are tiny things that sound so inconsequential but there were really really small ways for me to, to relate to him on at least some degree um and as small as it sounds it really helped me well, and to help the reader relate right because you can write despicable characters but if the reader relates that's the whole deal, right? Exactly. And I think it's the weird thing, right? That it's the, in these very spectacular stories, when they happen in real life, and then when we encounter them in fiction, it's the juxtaposition of these really mundane elements that we all have to have in our lives. And then these really sort of spectacular, really unimaginable crimes. But that's what life, that's what those lives are. Mm -hmm. It's the mundane and the unimaginable always together all the time. Well, I would love to hear you read from uh, The Quiet. Of course. <laughs> oh, I haven't done this in a minute. <laughs> um, well, I will read from the beginning because sure. why not? Why not? Chapter one, The Woman in the Shed. You like to think every woman has one and he just happens to be yours. It's easier this way if no one's free. There is no room in your world for the ones still outside. No love for the wind in their hair. No patience for the sun on their skin. He comes at night, unlocks the door, drags his boots through a trail of dead leaves, shuts the door behind him, slides the deadbolt into place. This man, young, strong, groomed. You think back to the day you met, to that brief moment before he revealed his true nature, and here's what you see, a man who knows his neighbors, who always takes out the recycling on time, who stood in the delivery room the day his child was born, a steady presence against the evils of the world. Mothers see him in line at the grocery store and shove their babies into his arms. Can you hold her for a minute? I forgot the formula. Be right back. And now he's here. Now he's yours. There is an order to what you do. He glances at you, but look that serves as an inventory. You are here, all two arms, two legs, one torso, and one head of you. Then comes the sigh, 
a softening in the muscles of his back as he settles into your shared moment. He bends to adjust the electric heater or the fan, depending on the season. You put out your hand and receive a Tupperware box. Steam rises from the lasagna, the shepherd's pie, the tuna casserole, whatever else it might be. The food, piping hot, leaves blisters on the roof of your mouth. He hands you water, never in a glass, always in a canteen, nothing that can be broken or sharpened. The cold liquid sends electric shots through your teeth, but you drink because the time to drink is now. A metallic taste lingers in your mouth afterward. He gives you the bucket and you do what you have to do. You stopped feeling ashamed a long time ago. He takes your waist and leaves you for a minute or so. You hear him right outside, the padding of his boots against the ground, the spray of the hose. When he comes back, the bucket is clean, full of soapy water. He watches as you clean yourself. In the hierarchy of your body, you are the tenant and he is the landlord. He hands you your tools, a bar of soap, a plastic comb, a toothbrush, a small tube of toothpaste. Once a month, the anti-lice shampoo. Your body always brings trouble and him keeping it at bay. Every three weeks, he pulls the nail clippers out of his back pocket. He waits while you snip yourself back to presentableness, then takes them back. Always, he takes them back. You have done this for years. You put your clothes back on. It seems pointless to you given what follows, but this is what he's decided. It doesn't work, you think, if you do it yourself. He has to be the one to pull down the zippers, undo the buttons, peel off the layers. The geography of his flesh, things you didn't want to learn, but learned anyway. A mole on his shoulder, the trail of hair down his abdomen. His hands, the grip of his fingers, the hot pressure of his palm on your neck. Through it all, he never looks at you. This isn't about you. This is about all the women and all the girls. This is about him and all the things boiling inside his head. When it's over, he never lingers. He's a man in the world with responsibilities calling out to him. A family, a household to run, homework to check, movies to watch, a wife to keep happy and a daughter to cradle. There are items on his to-do list beyond you and your little existence, all demanding to be crossed out. Except tonight. Tonight, everything changes. Tonight is the night you see this man, this very careful man known to take only calculated steps, violate his own rules. He pushes himself up, palms flat on the wooden floor. His fingers are miraculously splinter-free. He secures the belt buckle underneath his belly button, pushes the metal against the tight skin of his midsection. Listen, he says. Something sharpens, the most essential part of you rising to attention. You've been here long enough. You search his face, nothing. He's a man of few words, of muted facial expressions. What do you mean, you ask? He shrugs his fleece back on, zips it up to his chin. I have to move, he says. Again, you must ask, what? A vein pulses at the base of his forehead. You have annoyed him. To a new house. Why? He frowns, opens his mouth as if to say something, then thinks better of it. Not tonight. 
You make sure his gaze catches yours on his way out. You want him to drink in your confusion, all the questions left unaddressed. You want him to feel the satisfaction of leaving you hanging. Rule number one of staying alive in the shed, he always wins. For five years, you have made sure of it. I was curious if this was always the first chapter. Did you always begin the book with this chapter with her? Yeah, sorry, I feel like this is almost like the a, like a physical version of a Freudian slip. My throat got all itchy when I was <laughs> when I was uh, reading. I had a doctor once who told me he has patients who get like tendonitis the eve of a marathon, or oh. you know, lose their voice the day before <laughs> a big presentation, and. <laughs> reminds me of this um this was always the first chapter actually it didn't always look exactly like this um i think the first chapter is the one that got reworked the most because it's sure you know it's the the one where on which you practice finding your voice um but yeah i always knew that it would open in the shed with aiden in this way um which i thought might be challenging uh because it's a dark dark quote unquote, routine that, uh, you know, we have to have on the first page. But I couldn't think of a single other way to, to, to start it, uh, because that's the disruption. And that's usually when a story starts, right, when things start to be unusual. It used to be in the first person, uh, and later got switched to the second person. Well, I was going to say that all of her chapters are all in the second person present tense. The other two point of view characters, or and and the women, are um, all first person, right? Present tense. Yes. Um, so, how did you decide that? You know, so at first I wrote Rachel in the first person. Um, I believe I have an entire draft of her in the first person, mm. um, <clears throat> but her voice never truly sang for me in the first person. And I think it's because the things that happened to her are so outsized compared to what most of us experience that it just seemed odd to have her internal monologue be so direct and self-possessed while those things are happening. When something really violent or unexpected or traumatic or just scary is happening to you, you don't really process it that way. Um, you don't think, okay, I just got caught in a big wave. I don't know which way is up or down. I might drown. <laughs> um, it just sort of happens to you. You're outside of your body a bit. Sure. And I was reading Lisa Tadeo's Three Women at mm -hmm. some point when I was working on this book. And she uses the second person in parts of her book in uh, some of the chapters. And I thought, I loved those parts. They really sang for me. And so I decided to try it. And then I decided to change all of Rachel's chapters to put them in the second person. And for a time, I couldn't explain, I couldn't verbalize why it worked. I just sort of felt it did. And then I read an article by the author, Brendan Taylor, in which he wrote about the use of the second person singular in fiction. And he said, I paraphrase a little, but he said that the second person can be a way 
to represent the fragmentation of the traumatized mind. Mm. And I thought, oh, that's it. <laughs> that's why it works. It does work. <clears throat> I don't think I even, beyond that first chapter, I don't think I even noticed that it was in the second person for the rest of the book. I'm glad. I'm glad that you had that impression. <laughs> I, I think some people can find the second person jarring. Yeah, I've always loved it. I almost wonder if it's because English is my second language. And so I'm a little bit more used to it surprising me anyway. <laughs> um, but I've always just loved it. Well, I wanted to ask you about um, journalism because your background is in journalism. Yes. I mean, your master's. Yes. Is in journalism. So I don't know what how did that um, cross over to fiction and why why fiction then? You know, I mean, especially since you spend so much time as a journalist and studying journalism. Yeah, I still have my current day job is uh, is as a as a writer at the Independent, the, the British newspaper, um, and I actually do cover true crime as part of my job. Um, I always wanted to write fiction uh, from the age of seven. <laughs> I was I was one of those kids, um, and. Uh, um, but, but, you know, I, it was explained to me that this was not a terribly reliable career path and I should probably <laughs> find a way to, 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 to get an actual job, uh, with a, with an employer and a salary. And that's, I figured, well, what's the thing that's the most like that, but that you can do in an office and journalism, uh, was the answer. And also it, it seemed like a job that would, uh, challenge me in the right ways. I, I'm naturally a, sh I'm actually naturally a shy person, um, but you can't be shy if you're a journalist. And I sort of felt I had a choice to make. I could get a job that would always be outside of my comfort zone, or I could stay where I was comfortable. And I decided for better or worse to challenge myself. And mm -hmm. I don't regret doing it. it. It's good. I'm glad now I can talk to people. <laughs> um, but uh, I always wanted to write fiction, but I got to journalism first. Um, and then it was kind of a case of, uh, actually when I graduated from grad school, it was Columbia journalism school and it, I graduated in spring of 2015. And that was in a situation where I had a job lined up, but it wasn't going to start until August. I believe my visa did not allow me to work while I waited for this job to start, mm -hmm. nor did it allow me to leave the U S so I was stuck. I didn't have to job hunt. I couldn't work and I couldn't travel. And I thought, well, <laughs> if you don't write a novel now, it's not because you can't, it's because you won't. Right. <laughs> um, and that's how I started working on the first novel I ever finished. It's in a drawer somewhere, it wasn't good, but um, it was good to, to, to work on this sort of length. You know, I had never finished a I forget how long it was, but something that was over 90,000 words. I had never finished something of that length before. So that was my first foray into fiction. And uh, and uh, then I wrote actually a book in French that's not a thriller. It was a literary novel and it was very different. And it came out with a small press in France, an independent feminist press in Paris in September of 2020. Really interesting time to launch a book. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um and and then I had this idea and I thought, well, this is begging to be a thriller. Like I have to actually do this. I'm going to write a crime novel. And it felt like scratching the biggest itch because I'd always loved crime novels. So that's how I found my way to it. But I loved, I think actually going into fiction 
allows me to explore a bunch of things I don't get to do in journalism. Um, it's sort of creative freedom, right? I get to decide what's on the page. I can just make it up and that's frowned upon in the field of journalism. You can't really, <laughs> you yeah. really shouldn't do that. <laughs> um, it's a big no, no. Um, and so it was thrilling to be in a, in a, in a situation where I got to call the shots and, and uh, have the characters they wanted. Now there is a challenge to me, which is that fiction needs to make sense. Reality doesn't have to make sense. In real life, you can have idiosyncrasies and people can do things that are completely out of character and you can have deus ex machinas and coincidences and you get to say, well, it just happened that way. Mm -hmm. like, I don't know what else to tell you. You don't have to justify it any further than that. In fiction, there's creative control in the beginning, but then, you really have to follow your story and your characters and, and it has to cohere. Reality doesn't cohere. So it's interesting to do both. So you mentioned words. How many words um, is The Quiet Tenant? I believe it is 94,000 words, give or take. It might be 96, but around that, yes. And is that what it was when you submitted to the agent, your agent? I actually think that it might have been slightly longer. It maybe it was around maybe a hundred thousand. Although, oh, and then in edits, I mean, it went through phases. I, you know, up and it, down. yeah, it really up and down. With my editor cut out a bunch of words because we had to write other things and then re-edit some parts, but move them around. I love revising, so I was really happy, but. Yeah, it, it fluctuated. I wanted to ask you about revising. Um, how many revisions did this go through? But also, do you have a certain process? Do you work on certain things with each pass? Or how does it go for you? This is such a good question. Um, I think roughly. Actually, it, I will say it kind of varies project to project. Mm -hmm. For The Quiet Tenant. Um, it was the kind of thing where at first draft, no looking back, no editing as I go, six months, boom, boom, boom. With other kinds of projects, sometimes I find I have to go back a little bit and then see what happens. But this one was like, as much as I could, not looking back. Maybe sometimes on the weekends, I would read it a little bit to make sure I had everything in mind. But generally speaking, no looking back. And then revising by myself, usually what I do is I have a list of things that I need to address that I write down when I finish the first draft. And then I set it aside for a little bit, anywhere between two weeks and a month, pick it back up, read it again, add to the list. <laughs> then I go, <laughs> I make a little roadmap. I go through these items one by one. So I will, you know, fix one issue and then move on to the next. And it can be an issue that affects one part of the text or multiple parts of the text, depending if it's an issue in a character, then, Sometimes you have to go to different places. If it's just fixing a scene, then obviously it's just this scene. Because this, oh, there's my dog shaking. Um, <laughs> because this is kind of a layered process, after I'm done doing all this, I will reread the whole thing. And when I do that, I'm fixing both sentence level stuff and whatever is left of those issues that were on the list. If, if I didn't catch every passage, for example, you know, if any little of incoherence remains. This is basically the way I work every time I either finish a first draft by myself before I send it to my agent and every time I get a set of notes. 
mm-hmm. be it from my agent or from my editor. With The Quiet Tenant, we did two rounds of edits with my editor. Um, yeah, it's two rounds, you know, one big one where we really like some chapters moved places, we moved some stuff up, we changed some character things, we, and then a second round to address some remaining things. I don't know how many drafts this had because it's hard to number them because I'm so given to just rereading it again. But I would say it was the first draft, the draft I sent to my agent, the draft we sent out on sub, first pass, second pass uh, of edits, I mean, and mm-hmm. then first pass pages, which is when it's set and it looks like a book, second pass pages, which is really kind of last <laughs> For anything, this is when you like miss your subway stuff because you're reading it on your phone and you realize <laughs> a typo is your visual. Oh, and then there's puppy edits actually, right. and then that's last call really. Um, and and I did really miss my subway stop once because I noticed that I had a a typo that I hadn't caught, <laughs> and then, <laughs> and luckily it was it was there was still time to fix it. Um, and in those moments, you really are convinced that your entire life and career hinges on that typo being fixed. <laughs> well, what about um, the the tension? I mean, you keep the tension ratcheted up throughout the book. And and one technique I notice is the chapter endings keep me turning the pages. But what else do you remember doing to keep the tension going? Um, first of all, thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that's really something we worked on in edit, right? Like we really, the, the ideally you really want someone to just want one more chapter. As a reader, it's what I love to do, right? Just one more chapter. I really need to know what's going to happen. Um, and so that, that, that would be the experience I would hope to recreate for the readers. So mm-hmm. short chapters, you know, that creates that really, I find them really satisfying as a reader. Um, trying to make sure the transitions are kind of smooth between one point of view and the next. That's actually a bit of a challenge to make sure it's not just, it does, it's not clunky, right? So sometimes if a character ends a chapter on a certain note, then maybe you'll see that note picked up in the next chapter by a different character. Uh, knowing when to end a chapter, yes. Uh, usually you want to end when it's still interesting or which also forces you to know what this chapter is for, right? It's um, usually a chapter should lead to something interesting and that just helps you to make sure it's the case. If, if you don't know how to end a chapter, maybe we shouldn't have been there. Um, and there's a rule I always go back to, which is on a lot of writing blogs, but it never fails me. Um, it's by the creators of South Park whose names I always forget. So Matt Stone and Trey Parker, I think. I don't actually know if if I'm correct. But uh, the creators of South Park have this writing rule that every sort of scene in a story needs to be connected to the next one with the words either uh, but or therefore. So this happens, but this happens, therefore this happens. It can never be in then. So, and it's so, it sounds so basic, but it's a, I try to keep it in mind. No, I've heard that before. And this time I wrote it down when you said that. <laughs> it's really a lifesaver. <laughs> it's great. I will like, I will literally sort of sit there and try to tell myself the events of the novel 
making sure that's how they're articulated. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, you know, someone said this about me the other day, because I like, I write darkish fiction and, um, you know, she said something like, you know, you know, and, and Barbara's so sweet and nice and she writes this really dark stuff. And, and I was thinking about a lot of the crime writers and mystery writers I know who are very upbeat and very kind of perky and happy. And as you are, as you appear to be, and what do you think it is about, I mean, apart from your mother introducing you to Ted Bundy, (laughs) kid, like what, what is it about us about crime writing? You know, I mean, have you thought about Absolutely. I have my friend, Abby Endler, who's uh, at Crime by the Book on Instagram and <clears throat> who was my my in-house publicist that came out for much of the lead up to, to the publication of The Quiet Tenant. Um, we've had the same thought. We talk about it every time we have drinks together because we became fast friends because that's what crime people do. <laughs> um, our theory is we channel all of our aggression onto the page. And, uh, but I also think I think that I truly think that uh, writing crime fiction or dark fiction does sort of force you to process your stuff. Um, I couldn't write if I weren't also in therapy. Uh, my therapist read the draft, read a draft of this book, and um, she really was a part of this process. I do think it forces us to to process our emotions. I also think that good crime writing requires empathy. And usually that makes for pretty fun people to be right. Right. I mean, I would hope not to sort of <laughs> praise ourselves, but, <laughs> but hopefully it, it makes for sort of a good crowd. Um, and maybe weirdly enough, I became more optimistic about people after writing this book, which is really weird, but I think there was something about just making up this character Aiden and just having him do what I told him to do and also meeting so many wonderful people and the process of publishing this book and uh, seeing people really uh, understanding the story. It, it just made me really, it gave me a lot of positive feelings. And so what's funny is this book will like, people will sometimes say, well, you know, I, it really makes me rethink my trust in strangers and I'm always like no don't don't rethink it I think (laughs) I think it's a better world if we trust one another and if we're not scared of one another uh and uh and I think it really it's so weird but I I am more more trusting and more forthcoming after writing this horrible serial killer but what do you think it is about us (laughs) same thing really I mean I you know I, I think, I mean, I think it is the same thing as you're saying, mm-hmm. because I mean, I've been in a lot of therapy myself and I, so I dealt with, I've dealt with a lot of my personal junk and, um, but I find in my stories and my fiction that I pull a lot of things from my past that I've been through because there's been some really dark times. And so I'll pull those care, those people and create characters mm-hmm. out of them and just, deal with certain things in my past that way. And so it becomes fiction. It's not me anymore. You know? It it does give you a give you and give people a place to put all that, right? 
Right. And so I think afterwards we're sort of left maybe a bit more free to live our lives, right? Hopefully. And I will say, I have met so many wonderful, kind, generous people in the crime community, in the crime fiction community. Um, (laughs) And it's really true. There really are the nicest people. I'm sorry if you hear my dog barking at me. Sometimes when I get animated on a call, she she takes it very personally. (laughs) Yeah, my cat as well. She's sitting down here every so often. I'm like, not yet. Just um, no. I was just at BoucherCon in in San Diego um, a couple of weeks ago, and for those of um, you out there who don't know what BoucherCon is, it's a it's the biggest crime writer reader conference. It travels around the country. Um, next year, I think it's in Nashville, and. Um, but so many crime writers, mystery writers, thriller writers that are just like so harmonious, you know, just it was it's a wonderful community. Um, and yeah, I wonder why the literary the literary writers don't have the same thing. I've been curious about this. I mean, we have book festivals and such, but not like the same kind of support and community. I don't it seems I mean, I could be wrong, but um yeah, certainly the crime fiction community has those opportunities, right? I wasn't at VoucherCon, much to my chagrin, but I did go to Thriller Fest earlier this year, and it was in New York City, so it was in my in my backyard. And um, and yes, it was wonderful, right? Everyone is so nice and generous and supportive. And it's so weird because we all write these messed up books all day. All day. <laughs> well, <laughs> We go. We have a few minutes left. I wanted to ask you. You mentioned podcasts. Is there a, a true crime podcast that you love that you'd recommend? Oh, I'm so glad you asked this because there's one podcast I always recommend. Um, it's called True Crime Bullshit, and it's uh, if you look it up on Google, it's um, the last two letters I believe are stars mm-hmm. um, and uh, are asterisks, and uh, it is a podcast that focuses on one serial killer case. Uh, The serial killer was named Israel Keyes and he died in prison in 2011 or 2012. I always forget. Um, But basically he was sort of one of those archetypes, right? Who had a job and a family and a partner and then was revealed to have been a serial killer for multiple years and, to have led this completely double life and he died relatively young. He was 33. So, which is a little striking. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time of his death, the FBI had identified three of his victims with certainty, but he has more. Um, the real number is uncertain, but we think generally more than 10. And so this podcaster and investigator, citizen detective, let's just say, uh, Josh Hallmark hosts the podcast, and he's been investigating this case for 10 years, basically trying to identify the remaining victims. And most of them, or several of them, are still listed as missing persons. Mm -hmm. And so what Josh does is he sort of looks at missing person cases in in an area and cross-references it with the serial killer's known locations and... um, what we know about his MO and and what he told the FBI about various things. And he sort of tries to identify who those victims could be. And I think he has a wonderful brain. I think he also has a really 
interesting approach to true crime. He tries to be as ethical, as respectful as possible. Um, and I first heard about the podcast as, you know, I was a listener, I was a fan, and then I interviewed Josh for an article, and then we kept in touch, and now we're friends. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think he does really, really great work. So True Crime Bullshit, which by the way, the name comes from an interview that the killer did with the FBI, where he said he didn't want to talk about too many of his crimes, because he didn't want to become the subject of some true crime bullshit uh, <laughs> in the future. And there he um, is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna there he is. I'm gonna listen. Um yeah. closing, I wonder if you have any words or advice for the writers listening. Oh yes, yes. Hang in there. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, if you are a writer who maybe hasn't been published yet and is hoping that it might happen one day, um stay hopeful, uh keep writing. It seemed absolutely impossible to me. For years before this happened and then those things is funny that they take time to start I find and then it then you find it goes relatively quickly and and I really had I I was not in a happy place around the age of my mid I mean in some ways I was really happy but in professionally it was complicated around my mid mid 20s or 27 years old I really had like this quarter life crisis where I was like, what am I doing? Um, and I felt that it would never happen. So, but what the only thing that mattered is even when I felt like I was breaking my brain and I didn't understand how to write a novel and I didn't know what I was trying to do or how I was trying to say it, I kept writing. And so keep writing. Me, I'm a word count person. I mentioned the 500 to 1,000 words a day thing. I swear by it. I also really lower the standard in order to meet that, right? Like um, I have written on the subway, on the notes app, that's fine. Um, <laughs> just words on some type of software or paper. That's the standard, that's the goal, it's okay. You'll make it pretty later. And then also read, I know this is always the advice that is given, but it's so true. That is how you're going to figure out what kind of writer you wanna be, is by reading. So, um, that's that's really important. And then um, the one bit of writing advice I go back to was given to me and a group of other students at a uh, creative class I took in college. Maybe I was actually already a master's student there. I forget. It was in France at some point in my life. And our instructor was a novelist, a French novelist, because I grew up and studied in France. And he said, you know, yeah, by the time you've, you're done writing a manuscript, you really have to know everything about a character, sort of what are they like? What do they like? What do they dislike? All that kind of stuff. And I, and I kind of thought it was, it seemed a little on the nose at the time. It, it seemed to me a little cliche, but then I realized by the end of a novel, you usually a first draft, you are able to sort of intuit those kinds of questions. Even like, I don't sit down and write like what's his favorite ice cream flavor, like early, like at, before I start writing. But by the end, you have a sense of it. Right. They're like, well, he's kind of a like classic guy. So like <laughs> vanilla karma, you know, it's and, and who knows if it's true. But but I feel like that's how you feel like you have when I can intuit answers to those random questions. That's how I feel like I actually know a character really well. Um, so keep writing, keep exploring until until you feel like you know them and well, listen to your editor. 
You with the <laughs> cherry Coke, you know? Exactly. Like the cherry Coke. <laughs> exactly. Oh, thank you so much for taking the time. You've been a delight and I love the book and I'm so glad I found it and found you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for your kindness. Thank you so much for inviting me onto the show. This was a treat. Of course. Thank you all for taking the time to listen and a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters who helped make this show possible. Thank you to Travis Barrett who does our music and sound editing. And by the way, if you like the music you hear on the show, you can find an album's worth of typewriter music on Spotify. Search out the artist Just My Type. Travis also has other music there under his name, Travis Barrett. You can access our archive of shows, 25 years worth, at writersonwriting.com. And if you want to get in touch with us, email writersonwritingpodcast at gmail.com. You can reach Travis Barrett at travisbarrettcreative at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. And in the meantime, remember to stay in the chair.